for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan, your host, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by someone who I have admired for as long as I have been reading about the game of cricket, a sport that my guest has evocatively called the most subtle and sophisticated game known to humankind. Uh, a very very warm welcome to writer, historian, award-winning author, biographer of Mahatma Gandhi, and a great connoisseur of the game of cricket dr ramachandra guha thank you so much for sparing the time thank you sid i must uh, mention uh, uh, one anecdote uh, ram i don't know uh, i'm pretty sure you may not remember but i of course it is etched in my memory uh, back in the late 90s i used to be a regular at the karnataka quiz association where i used to attend quizzes on sunday and uh, ram used to also be there quite often and uh, he along with his son uh, who I have got subsequently gotten to know they used to also be there for the quizzes and me being an absolutely avid admirer and uh, reader of uh, ram's columns once went to him uh, and with a piece of paper and in a very amateur way asked him if he could give me an autograph and uh, ram being ram said no i do not give an autograph i am not a celebrity but if you bring me a book of mine then i am happy to autograph that so the very next quiz basically i took the my favorite book that of uh, ram gopas that i've read that i had read then which was uh, spin another turns and uh, he was gracious enough to autograph it i still have the copy and uh, yes i don't know if i've shared this with you ram but uh, this is a very fond memory of mine thank 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 you sir i still follow that policy i don't give i don't give autograph but i have regretted and occasionally i uh, i'm happy to give selfies Oh uh, yes now of okay. course we live in the world <laughs> that is okay but, but yes because i mean i mean because as a writer of books you want someone to buy your book and then you know now happily autograph it yeah but anyway yeah yes yeah, so uh, my my uh, couple of friends of mine who are there uh, have often asked me if i have told you this incident and i said i don't know but then now that you are on my podcast i thought it is best <laughs> if i inform you on that anyway so today we are not going to be talking about spin another turns uh, hopefully i will get to that at uh, some stage but today we are going to talking about a far weightier book of rams uh, an absolutely authoritative and a sweeping history of indian cricket that was published in 2002 corner for foreign field i'm sure almost everybody who listens to this podcast has uh, has the book or has read the book and if you haven't i would <laughs> highly recommend that you do that it's a book that uh, you know when i read it for the first time it immediately called to mind the uh, clr james's classic work of cricket literature beyond the boundary and this is a social history of the game in india that traces the origins of cricket and illuminates how the game has gained such a mass following from the 1800s through to you know the next century until the time the book was published which was in the late 90s i mean uh, through early 2000 now uh, i have revisited this book every few years and with every passing year it seems that it the book will has gained greater relevance in understanding the fissures and tensions both within indian cricket as well as within indian society as a whole now we, these days of course it is very common for people to say uh, you know sport and politics should not mix and uh, don't bring politics into sport but corner of a foreign field is a book that expertly lays out why we cannot understand the development of cricket in india without taking into account the racial religious caste based and uh, nationalistic threads that are embroidered within the game's fabric 
Now, to read the con uh, the contour for foreign field is in many ways to have uh, your mind opened up. So I think, um, uh, Ram, thank you again uh, for this marvelous book. It's been more than 20 years, but I think, you know, given the uh, social and political situation of India today, I think it's a very, very relevant read for anyone. So please take us back a bit to maybe the mid or late 90s when you, you know, the idea was sort of uh, started forming in your head for this book. And did it all start with, uh, you know, just the idea of history or did it start with this character who, of course, we shall come to uh, soon, the central character? Let us know. It actually began uh, as a kind of collaboration uh, between me and uh, Sujit Mukherjee, who was an elder cricket writer I greatly admired, and thank you for your kind words about spin and other turn. And uh, in the, I mean, how old were you in, when we met in 97, 98? I would have been in high school. Okay. So when I was in high school, I discovered Sujit Mukherjee's writings, and I developed a great admiration for him. And, you know, his, his first two books, uh, Romance of Indian Cricket and uh, Playing for India, which was updated, had a great, a great impact on me. And uh, to my great uh, pleasure, I befriended him while I was writing my own first two books, Wickets in the East and Spin and Other Turns. And he lived across the road from me in Hoskas in Delhi. And I'll never forget that uh, I showed him a draft of the book of, of actually Wickets in the East, my first book, and he made comments. And then I sent him the second draft and he marked it up in pencil. He was also a university professor and a editor and a publisher, apart from being a cricket writer. He was actually a great literary scholar to a great expert on Togo. And he marked it up and when I went to meet him, he said, he said, now it is a book. So I remember <laughs> the endorsement of my second draft. And as I said, this was the late, 80, uh, late uh, mid to late 90s. And Sujit and I thought we would write a book together on the Bombay Pentangular which would be a book about cricket. It would not be a book about politics or society or culture or race or whatever. It was a kind of a, you know, it would have been an evocation of the first great generation of Indian cricketers. So Sujit Mukherjee had played Randy Trophy for Bihar. Uh, his captain, Shute Banerjee, had actually played in the, in the quadrangular and the pentangular. He so had Sikh and I do, whom he knew. Uh, uh, so that was what it was going to be. And we were working, so we, we divided up our time and the microfilms were in the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library of the Bombay Chronicle and the Times of India, the two major newspapers of, of Bombay. And uh, we did a little bit of work and then Sujit, after about a week, told me, he said, Ram, I'm too old, my eyesight is not very good, I cannot look at microfilms, so you do it on your own. So he very generously stepped away and then I continued reading the microfilms and I think uh, uh, it's hard to date you know, when this book changed from being a history of cricket to a history of India through cricket. But I suspect it was when I was looking at the Bombay Chronicle for the year 1913. And uh, it was about these were in those years, the, this quadrangular was played in September, November, October. Later it became November, December. And I was looking at like early September uh, microfilms of the Bombay Chronicle. And there was a report of a meeting held by the Gaud Saraswat Association of Bombay to felicitate M.D. Pai, who was had just been chosen captain of the Hindu team in the quadrangular. Again, uh, just very briefly, uh, for the listeners who are not familiar with the origins of this tournament, uh, the Bombay, what was to become the Bombay Pentangular, started as a match between Europeans and Parsis, the Parsis being the first Indians to take to the game. 
A little later, in 1907, it became a triangular with the Hindus added on. In 1912, it became a quadrangular. And from 1912 to 1935, it was played between Europeans, Parsis, Hindus, and Muslims. And in 1935, a fifth team called the Rest was added on to accommodate Indian Christians who could not play for the Europeans, Buddhist Jews, and so on. And it was really a, I mean, it was really the precursor not just of the Ranji Trophy but of the Indian Premier League. It was the major sporting spectacle of India between 1912 and 1945. You know, and and uh, it was avidly followed. There was radio commentary and all the newspapers. Though it was played in Bombay, the teams were selected from all over India. The Tribune of Lahore, the Amrita Bazar. Uh, Patrika of Kolkata, the Hindu of uh, Madras, would all cover it. So I was reading this report, uh, and uh, it was about the selection of MD Pai as the captain of the Hindu team. And, uh, you know, the Gaud Saraswat, his caste community in Mumbai, Bombay, as it was then known, was delighted that one of their, of their own had been made captain. So they had a party for him. And uh, not dissimilar to, shall we say, I'm sure the Jharkhand Cricket Association would have thrown a party when Dhoni became captain of the Indian team. So, at this, this report said that in his speech at the felicitation, MD Pai said he was grateful to his community uh, for hosting this reception for him, but he felt constrained to say that the honor of being the captain should have gone to his colleague, Mr. P. Balu, who was the senior and the more experienced player of the team. Now, this is 1913. Just two years after the first All India Tour of England in 1911, a tour that is the subject of a wonderful book by the historian Prashant Kirambi, Cricket Country. Yeah. And uh, on that tour, MD Pai had gone as the batsman and had performed very poorly. I think he averaged 16 or 18. And Balu was the great success. He was a bowler who got 150 wickets. He was even offered county contracts. And he was clearly the best player in the Hindu team. But he was not made captain. And I knew Balu was a Dalit. And then it, the kind of penny dropped that Pai was a Brahmin, Balu was a Dalit. Pai was somewhat embarrassed at being made captain. He accepted it, but publicly conveyed his embarrassment in this very euphemistic way. You know, the honor should have gone to Mr. Balu, who was the senior more next player. Yeah. I think while reading this, I thought, I said, this is unprecedented. You know, uh, uh, you, know uh, uh, you would not get. Uh, K.L. Rahul saying the honor of being vice captain should go to Mr. R. Ashwin, who's a better and a more experienced player in the team. <laughs> For example, right? You would not have Pat Cummins saying, you know, maybe Manas Labashen should be captain. No person appointed captain ever in public says, I'm not qualified for the job. I don't think it's, it's sporting history. This is a unique occasion. And it had to do with Balu's caste. And then the kind of penny dropped. I said, there's a story here, uh, which is goes beyond cricket. And then, of course, I got into the politics of race and religion and so on. But and then slowly this, make, this became already a social history. And there are some descriptions of matches and innings. But those are secondary to the larger story of uh, the, the playground as a theater for the unfolding of uh, the social and political and religious life of British India. I'm, I'm so glad that you uh, brought up Balu straight away and that he, that it had that getting to know about that incident of his captaincy was a major role in you know you getting into the book because uh, clearly for me he is the hero of the book palwankar balu and he uh, is such a remarkable figure because of so how much i knew how i knew nothing about him before reading this book i mean in fact spin another turns has this one line that you mention about uh, mc raja balu and uh, gandhi 
yeah. and Ambedkar, sorry, not Gandhi, yeah. and Ambedkar in that thing. And that itself is like it sort of opens up a bit in your head and you're like, what? Uh, there's this cricketer and this. And then, of course, you have uh, blown that up in corner of a foreign field. And it, the uh, chapters that you write on Balu and his family are so evocative. And, you know, arguably they are the first family of Indian cricket. I mean, just yes. like you mentioned the Mohammeds of Pakistan Absolutely. and the uh, chapels of Australia. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how little... I mean, despite them having such a casting such a large shadow over Indian cricket for such a long time, how we know nothing about them apart from this book. And uh, even after that, I don't think there has even there has been other other historians who have continued to pursue like a biography of him or anything of that sort. I wish there was a biography of Balu, uh, a really full fledged biography, which uh, uh, could use materials, more materials in Marathi than I could have used. In fact, the second edition to the book, which is published in 2014, which had one new chapter uh, and a new preface. That preface, I said, you know, that's one of the sporting projects I would like uh, someone else to do. But, you know, he's, he's a bigger that attracts interest. I've had several proposals uh, uh, to buy the rights to my book to make a film about Balu. And I have uh, so far turned them down because they've tried to sensationalize the story. They've tried to Bollywoodize it, you know. And I think... Uh, uh, I would not want to be part of that. Uh, but it's, I think, a full-fledged biography of this person, his family, the context, against the backdrop of, you know, the social reform movement, Dalit politics. They must, well, he was a truly great bowler. And uh, his, his 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 brother, Vithal, who's uh, uh, also an important character in the book, who eventually becomes captain of the Hindus. And, of course, scores 100 in an epic final against the Europeans, which I describe with great relish in my book. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're absolutely right. I mean, Balu is a central figure. Without pursuing Balu, I would not have even got into the other threads of race and religion and nation. Those were sec- those, those came later. And the, the chapters on Balu are obviously uh, the ones I uh, most enjoyed researching. And I'm very grateful to old newspapers. I mean, you've been a journalist yourself. And I'm glad that the archive of the Bombay Chronicle and of uh, other such papers was preserved in, um, at least on microfilm form. And one could reconstruct the story of these, uh, these this family, this extraordinary family, mostly through newspapers. There was also a Marathi autobiography that Balu's younger brother Vithal wrote that I got translated. I had a research assistant look at some key match reports in, in Navakal, which was a, a nationalist Marathi newspaper. Uh, and there must be much more in Marathi. It was also attracted by the Marathi writer Bal Pandit uh, uh, in a series on great, great figures of the world, not just great figures of India. So actually in his lifetime, he was a major figure. I mean, in fact, Ambedkar's first public appearance uh, was a felicitation for Balu in 1911 after he comes back from England having taken 150 wickets. Uh, you know, he was a member of the Bombay municipality. He stood for election to the assembly. So he was a major public figure. And so was Vittal. And Vittal as a batsman was an icon for Vijay Merchant. I quote Vijay Merchant on Vittal's batsmanship in my book. And actually, uh, Vijay Merchant, as you know, was a, a great batsman and also an industrialist and a philanthropist. And he later gave Vittal's children jobs in his mills and so on, obviously out of a sense of obligation. So, uh, I mean, absolutely, they were the first family. They were forgotten because their career ended even before the Ranji Trophy, let alone Test cricket. So by the time the 1932 tour of England took place, which is the first time we play a Test match, Vittal was too old. He tried out, but he was in his early or mid-40s. So it was, he really couldn't make it. So he was erased and so was Balu. And... Uh, uh, I mean, there's a third brother called Shivaram who was a capable all-rounder. Uh, certainly, were very high first-class level. Uh, but 
as I argued in my book, if one considers Ranji an English cricketer, as he himself said, he said, Duleep and I are English cricketers. Uh, and their game was shaped and made in England. They played for Sussex and for England. They never played for any Indian team. If one considers Ranji and Duleep as English cricketers, the first great Indian cricketers were Balu and his brother Victor. You know, the first great Indian spin bowler and the first great Indian batsman, respectively. And it's it's really tragic that um, uh, they've been lost, uh, you know, uh, uh, to folk and popular memory. And even after my book came out, I mean, I wish the BCC I had done something about them, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I, for example, you know, lo, 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 one doesn't, one shouldn't hope for too much from the BCC when it comes to such things. But it, I, I, I absolutely, I mean, Balu... Uh, is a central figure in the book, and I think without him, this book would not have been written. I mean, the the uh, really uh, heartbreaking portions of the book is where Balu is not even allowed to get into the dressing rooms in the in his team, and there is also this incident. I think it is probably either I think it is Vital who is not allowed to lift a trophy inside the clubhouse, right? Yeah. And he has to, uh, you know, he has to be presented the trophy outside. And, uh, you know, the the kind of, I mean, this is, you do mention Jackie Robinson in yes. the book, and this is such a parallel with uh, yeah. the uh, the Black uh, American experience when it comes to baseball and uh, emancipation. But, uh, yes, it is a huge tragedy. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Vital and uh, the fact that he was, uh, you would write in the book also that how Vijay Merchant admired him. And I was reading, I just noted down that bit where Vijay Merchant writes, uh, and I quote, with supple wrists, keen vision, perfect judgment of flight and agile footwork, Vittal had mastered the art of batting. Now, you could be talking about Rohit Sharma in this instant. You know, I mean, the famed Bombay school of batting perhaps starts with Vittal and not with Merchant. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely absolutely right. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and and same thing with uh, Balu. I mean, many of your... uh, descriptions uh, that you have quoted from those contemporary records. I mean, Balu seems like a Ravindra Jadeja kind of bowler, you know, yeah. with that uh, really easy run to the wicket and the accuracy and uh, yeah. remarkable. I mean, remarkable how the threads connect across absolutely. the centuries. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so so when you... Uh, this uh, Tell us a bit about that uh, incident that you mentioned in the book about uh, travelling to Thane... Uh, to and you end up meeting uh, this Palwankar Balu's nephew who gives you this book and how hey, it's remarkable how so yeah know. so what I mean of course uh, uh, this is uh, this is pre-internet it must have been about nineteen ninety five or ninety six and I looked at all the Palwankars uh, in the Bombay telephone directory and Perfect. I called them one by one and one picked up and I said are you ready to Palwankar Balu he said yes. Uh, the cricketer, and I spoke to him in Hindi. I don't speak Marathi, but, you know, in, in Mumbai, most Marathians speak Hindi. And I took the train to Mumbai, from Mumbai to Thane, which was a kind of, uh, you know, uh, evocative journey for a historian, because that's the first railway line in India, Mumbai to Thane, 1853, 26 miles. And 145 years later, I was going down this this line, 145 years after inaugurated. And there's this, I remember going to that old part of Thane with, you know, curving streets and old tiled houses. And I met this gentleman and he said, ha, ah, and then it turned out he was only distantly related to uh, the, the the Palmankar family I wanted, but he gave me the name of uh, 
Balu's nephew, K.V. Palwankar, was Vithal's son, who stayed in, uh, in the outhouse of a well-known building in Dadar called Empress Mahal. I mean, if, if some of your listeners are from Mumbai, they may know Mr. Named Dadar Titi. Uh, and I went there and he chatted and he was very helpful. And then he and then he took out, uh, so this was in 1997, and then he took out um, uh, this uh, uh, book, uh, his father's autobiography, and said, you can take it. And uh, then I went back and um, by base part, then I started my research in the book and the book, I think he must have given it to me in 95 or 96. And in 1998, I published an essay in the Oxford Historical Journal, Past and Present, called Cricket and Colonialism, uh, which had some stuff about Balu and Vittal. And I uh, uh, took that offering on my next visit to Bombay in 1998 and went back to K.V. Palwankar's house, the nephew of Balu and the son of Vittal, and said, Sir, thank you for your research. This is what I've written, uh, for your help, this is what I've written. He said, itna chota sa pamphlet, bhag sa get out. <laughs> you, you have exploited me. I know all these journalists. They just eat and exploit and go away, go away. I said, sir, 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 I fell into it, bhago. He called me, he So I went back and he said, 1998. Then in 2002, my book came out. And the book came out and uh, it got fantastic reviews. It was written about the Marathi press, you know, covered it. And I may have sent Mr. K.V. Palmalkar a copy, I don't know. But then he wrote me a long letter of apology. He said, <laughs> you know, I trusted you. Then I thought I was wrong to trust you. But I'm glad you've done this to bring my father and uncle back to. But I, I vividly remember how when I wrote just one mere pamphlet. He said, get out. You're a typical exploitative journalist. You've just taken my copyright and done nothing about it. right? So <laughs> but when the book came out and the press covered it, because who's going to write about an academic journal, you know, right? So I remember, so he was very helpful and a wonderful man. But he, he gave me the letter. Uh, that Vijay Merchant wrote to him after his, his father died, which I quote in my book. And uh, then I, in Pune, I met Balu's son, uh, who uh, told me some very interesting things, how that his father discouraged him from playing cricket. So his son, Yashwant Balu Palwankar, captain command universities and played a few matches for uh, Bombay and then gave up cricket. He, played, he said, and even played a Bombay Ranji Trophy final. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, I have to check that. I didn't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It must be in the 40s sometime. Yeah, I mean, uh, to have made the Bombay Ranji team at that time and played the final, must have been big, good. Big, 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 big. But then he told me, he said that my father discouraged us from playing cricket because he said, you know, uh, it brings a lot of bitterness and unhappiness and, uh, you know, get a, get a profession instead. So actually, interesting aspect of social mobility. One of Vittal's grandsons was an I, uh, IIT engineer who is now in Switzerland, you know, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, the, the research was interesting, both the kind of field research and the interviews and also, of course, uh, uh, the newspaper uh, documentation. Yeah, now that you come to that, I mean, there is a quote that you have in the book about uh, saying that uh, the challenges of writing a social history of Indian cricket is the criminal indifference that Indians have to the written record. Uh, that is, but as one reads the book, one is also, in a way, marveling at the amount of uh, things that were written about cricket, uh, Times of India, Bombay Chronicle, and the various other publications, the Marathi Press, and all that you have uh, ferreted out from uh, in different ways from various libraries. And it strikes me as remarkable that a cricketer such as Vital, who was so big at that time, and who in fact captained the Hindus to a, such a famous victory in the pentangular 
the book was uh, you know just uh, hardly distributed nobody yeah. seems to have read it seems to have been one of the very few copies remaining which you have of yeah. course went on to resurrect but uh, it what tell me a bit about this uh, paradox here where you mentioned about the lack of resources but then you also quote from so many places yeah. so you know so essentially um, sometimes younger scholars ask me whether i do internet research and they think everything is available on the internet and sometimes not having stuff uh, readily available is a challenge and a provocation to finding out for yourself and discovering new sources so i'd say broadly you know if i was to, to look at the major sources i used one was of course old newspaper reports which is, is very painstaking laborious because you have to look at an entire round of newspapers scroll it down and sometimes you have to you don't have to look just in the sports page there could be editorials there could be cartoons there could be letters to an editor which are often quite interesting about cricket and politics and so on uh, that was of course one one um, one major source a second source was two very valuable collections uh of older cricket writers so one was a collection of anjan alanji dosa who was uh uh statistician you know, and writer i think played one ranji match he and his great friend vasant raiji who was also very helpful to me while writing this book who was a cricket historian and ranji was a player alji dosa had donated his whole collection to the cci library and what they said to that was so alji dosa started in the 30s i started collecting stuff from them and i think wasn't right these collections also the cci so they had all the out of print books a biography of sikh and i do written in 1945 a brochure of jardine's team to england in 1932 wow a club history you know 25 years of cci 50 years of sundar cricket club for which uh, vijay merchant played you know uh, uh, uh histories of teams you know saurashtra cricket down the ages you know like pamphlets pub- published on uh, on jubilees 50th anniversary which are very rare to get so that was one collection the other was uh, in delhi and uh, this is a this is a collection of a sports site called kv gopalaratnam who should write a lot in the old sport and past time of the hindu yes, whose son yes. kv prasad is a journalist with the uh, i think used to be the hindu i don't know where he is now and he had donated his entire collection of clippings and old magazines from the 50s and 60s to the sports authority of india and i am told that doesn't exist that the sports authority of india has actually through the criminal indifference to records given it away as gandhi but i was able to see it so if you have for example when balu dies in 55 there's an obituary in a magazine and this guy kept it so it traces balu's career you know or if there is anniversary of the first england tour tour and then again there is something so those two sets of clippings and brochures and out of print books were incredibly valuable and finally of course there was a little bit of uh, interviewing and one particularly to me memorable piece of field work which emerges very late in the book long after balu and vitel were dead which happened in the world cup of 1999 when india and pakistan were Uh, fighting a war in the high himalaya and were playing this world cup match in manchester where i actually got a ticket to <laughs> and was obviously with the crowd and that's a kind of um, i think that that chapter is called kashmir comes to the penines you know that, yes, yes. that's correct the book so it was a little bit of my own observation but mostly it was this kind of different kinds of documentary sources fugitive scattered obscure uh, partly acquired through good luck 
partly through the beneficence of earlier collectors like Anandji Dosa and uh, uh, you know and um, uh, K B Gopal Ratnam, and of course the fantastic resources of the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library, especially old newspapers. Yeah, absolutely. And some, some overseas, a little bit, and, and some also archival records in Bombay. For example, in the Maharashtra State Archives, I found the records of the setting up of the first gymkhanas on Marine Drive. And how did the, how were Indians able to persuade the British to give them land? Uh, in a library in England, I found an out-of-print book published in Bombay in 1897, uh, which was the struggle between European polo players and Indian cricketers, native cricketers. You know, which and you, didn't, you didn't find it in the cricket section, but you found it somewhere else. Somewhere else, yeah, yeah. So yeah. very interesting. So that's so that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And also, now that we're talking about these sources and these newspapers and these magazines, it also struck me how, uh, you know, completely unabashed these people were, uh, these uh, publications were in talking about the confluence of uh, religion and uh, nationalism and race and caste. And how there were letters being written to the publications saying that this person has been left out because of his caste. How uh, players like Vittal uh, were also boycotted the uh, games uh, and yes. said they will not play. This is uh, remarkable in a it country where yeah. where we are now, you know, attuned to saying don't mix sports and politics. Please yeah. stay, keep away. <laughs> so that is that is actually remarkable. That incident. Uh, uh, of where Vittal boycotted, which is again, um, I think, a major set piece in my book. And I think it's 1919 quadrangular, 1920. 1919, actually, MD Pai is captain and he allows Balu to become captain. He, he discreetly leaves the field for half an hour and lets him be the acting captain, you know. So, which is a very nice gesture. The next year, 1920, Balu is uh, D.B. Devdar, a young Brahmin, a good cricketer, but a young Brahmin from Pune is made captain. Balu is dropped from the team altogether because the casteist uh, community members of the Hindu Gymkhana did not want to make him captain. And uh, Vithal and Shivaram, Balu's younger brothers, who are still very active, are unnamed in the team, but Devdar is captain. And they go on strike and they release a statement which I quote in the Bombay Chronicle, which says, why should caste discrimination operate on the cricket field? And we won't play. I mean, it's a moment of great... Uh, Courage uh, uh, shown by these people and a sense of self-respect. I mean, uh, it's a challenge to the cricketing establishment, the prejudiced, reactionary cricketing establishment of the kind, of course, one will never find today by any Indian cricketer, you know, or, or, at all, you know, whatever is going on, you know. So, I mean, that's a great episode when Vithal and Shivaram go on strike, they're dropped. And then, of course, three years later, Vithal becomes captain and leads his team to victory and continues to captain all through the 1920s. So yes, I mean, these were people of um, an extraordinary uh, strength of character. I mean, I think both Balu and Vittal uh, were truly uh, remarkable human beings, not just great cricketers, but uh, their kind of moral uh, fiber, despite the discrimination they'd faced, uh, they were not at all submissive. They stood up for their rights in the way in which, of course, many African-American sportspersons have down the decades. Yeah, but the, but the interesting bit for me is also, of course, uh, completely agree with you about their courage and moral fiber, but also that the, the Hindu Jimkana did not just throw them out and ostracize them. They were actually then discussions 
about the fact that what can be done in the yeah. future to so so it was not like a, a, a set setup where people said okay just black uh, just send them out we have nothing to do with them let just airbrush them out of uh, you know memory <coughs> there was actually a so, sense of dialogue and so the that, press was also very involved yeah so the press of course the nationalist press is very involved and partly it's because gandhi has written return rules on africa and gandhi is very active in the movement to abolish untouchability in 1920 the year this incident happens gandhi actually says they can be no swaraj without the abolition of untouchability so the mood of the hindu public is changing is becoming more open minded less crusty and prejudiced and uh, i think that of course aids the cause of uh, the palwankar brothers yeah I mean, when did this so this post is this a post independence change or did it happen over time because um, suddenly post 1947 it seems that suddenly we just uh, everyone decided that okay sports and politics can just stay apart and we'll just focus on cricket and even the cricket writers for the last yeah. 20 30 years yeah, stay yeah. away from it there is no there is not even an attempt to engage with the society of the day and stand connected to the sport yeah i mean what is called society of the day i mean the question of why have there been so few dalit cricketers even though the first great indian cricketers were dalits yeah but also you know the whole links with politics with commerce with big capital you know uh, uh cronyism none of this has been investigated and it's, it's it's a pity i mean obviously the issues are different some of the issues are different now and new putting the role of the market and large corporations in determining how cricket is played and where it is played and politicians i mean it's quite extraordinary how you know uh and this has gone this has been it's not just true today i mean today of course you it's it's rather rather obvious because the son of the second most powerful man in india is is uh, is uh, secretary of the bcci and the post most powerful man in india amit shah actually is micromanaging how the bcci is run i mean this is a barely kept secret though no one writes about it but if you look at congress politicians in the past you know madhavrao sindhya and kp salve non congress non bjp politicians like Manohar Joshi, Sharad Pawar, and why is it that these people want to meddle so much in how cricket is played and managed and orchestrated and administered? So I wish you know uh, uh, on the historical side, there's been some very good writing. I think Prashant Kedambi's book is first class. You know, I think that's a wonderful Absolutely. account. And there's a younger historian now working on. There's a young historian called Sobik Naha. I don't know if you've seen his book, uh, uh, Siddharth. Is it about Calcutta? Uh, No, no. It's about Calcutta. It's about the culture of cricket in Calcutta. Oh, from the thirties, fifties. Very good book. Cambridge University Press just published it. So it's about the culture of cricket watching and appreciation uh, in Calcutta. I mean, my book is mostly about Bombay. Uh, Prashant's book is mostly about England and Indian cricketers in England. And this is a kind of a very good book on Calcutta. You know, and the whole kind of cultural history of cricket in Calcutta, including street cricket, para cricket, who goes to Eden Gardens, what are the conversations, what are the debates. It, broadly, the 30s to the 60s is 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 what the book is very strong about. But it's excellent. Uh, so the social history of cricket is now you know some very fine young scholars are working. But bringing it closer to the present and looking at the kind of interpenetration of commerce and politics on one side and cricket on the other in the last 20, 30 years, I think uh, awaits uh, serious uh, uh, analysis and and writing. So my own book. uh actually these four master categories that i use uh to divide the book chronologically race caste na- religion and nation i think by the time uh, i finished the book i suddenly a few years later i realized that is the fifth master category which is the market 
you know, and of course the IPL is very much part of it. So uh, I am, I obviously, I don't want to add a fifth. I'm, I'm, I'm not young anymore and I, I don't have the energy to do kind of that kind of research, but a whole kind of book on the commerce of cricket, you know, uh, and of course it's cultural, political, sporting ramifications, uh, which also, and maybe a sixth uh, axis, uh, a sociological axis uh, through which to understand the history of Indian cricket. In addition to race, caste, religion, and nation, there's market and maybe gender. You know, I think that's something which is also missing in my book. Not just women cricketers, but women followers, critics. I mean, that uh, uh, the Indian cricket writer uh, of the younger generation I most admire, Sharda Ugra, I mean, uh, is, 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 is female. I and mean, that would be inconceivable when I was growing up, right? Uh, all the number of women uh, who follow cricket, write about it, you know, and crowds are now very mixed. I mean, including at IPL and test matches. And of course, the Indian women's team, and you know, the there's a very good history, of course, of uh, women's cricket by uh, Kaushik and Patnaik. But uh, I think uh, some of these aspects, particularly the market, as an axis to understand Indian cricket, and you know, economic liberalisation, the growth of satellite television, sponsorship, and what that has done to how cricket is played, perceived, viewed, debated about. I think those await their chroniclers. Absolutely. And uh, I will definitely uh, check out the recommendation that you made about the book about uh, history of cricket in Calcutta. Uh, but, you know, just on a personal note, I mean, you were looking from the late 90s, you were going back to the early 1900s and seeing all these records. I'm just imagining a historian in, say, 2070, who is going back to the early 2000s and looking at all the media and uh, then looking at the history of the country and uh, drawing a blank in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be a challenge, but obviously you'll have to use different kinds of sources, websites, social media, videos, you know, and uh, it can be done. It can be done. Yeah, it, I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. So uh, one of the you know lines that really strikes out in the book is how uh, you mentioned very early that cricket has always been a microcosm of the fissures and tensions within Indian society, fissures that it has both reflected and played upon, mitigated as well as intensified. Uh, close quote. And I want to talk to you a bit about this uh, really uh, remarkable confluence of the movement for freedom, the you know uh, nationalistic mood that was there through the time when all these, uh, the cricket that you're mentioning, the pentangulars were going on. And the British role in this whole, uh, you know, aspect of cricket as well as cricket within each community and how some people, some of them seem to have thought that this is a way in which they can uh, sort of uh, keep the nationalistic uh, movement at bay. But some of them also thought that this is a very dangerous thing to be uh, introducing cricket to the Indians because they could use it as a tool against the British and all these. And especially with Sikh and Idu's, uh, famous innings of uh, 153. And just as a note, this is episode number 153 of the $81 podcast. So, you know, it connects very well to some of the famous uh, cricket innings. But yeah, I mean... How that innings was seen as, you know, a strike against the British Empire when actually there were many people in Britain. So, yeah, talk a bit about that. And especially as a historian and as somebody who has, uh, you know, been a biographer of Gandhi and spoken about independence and spoken about the modern history of Indian, uh, modern uh, history of India, that must have been very interesting for you. Yeah. So, you know, just listening to your question, um, the way you posed it, Siddhartha, it strikes me that one of, you know, when you start a piece of research, and you dig deeper, and then you start writing. Uh, sometimes it takes you directions which you don't anticipate. 
uh, just as this became a book about society and politics rather than just about cricket, where it began. But I think one of the, I don't know whether it's a happy accident, but one of the things that has emerged is the significance of the city of Bombay in the story of this book. And I'd say that one of the compliments I most cherish uh, uh, with regard to this book comes from Naresh Fernandez, who's uh, uh, you know, the editor of a scroll and a journalist and chronicler of Bombay himself. And he has several times put it on his list of one of the five best books about Bombay. You know, so so which I mean, touched me very much. Not books about cricket, but books about Bombay. So I think, you see, the city of Bombay. So if you look at, firstly, this is a city, uh, uh, I mean, obviously, Calcutta is the capital and later Delhi, but Bombay is the window to the West, you know, in terms of the trade. It's the major commercial center. You know, so the British have a very important uh, strategic and economic state stage in Bombay, which is why they want to establish themselves, take over the best lands, construct their clubs, play polo and not allow Indians to play cricket, establish their authority and their dominance over the native population. Uh, then you have, of course, uh, this city built on uh, a tiny string of islands. So unlike our hometown, Bangalore, which is expanded everywhere. I mean, if you see, even in your lifetime, let alone mine, the way Bangalore has gone and north, south, east and west and taken over all the surrounding farmland. Like, a, and like an octopus. Land. Yeah, <laughs> right. But Bombay can't do that. It has to be shriveled in here. So there's these narrow streets and these shawls and, you know, the kind of social segregation between the rich of Kalaba, the middle class of uh, uh, Dharavi and the working class of uh, the Chawls, uh, the middle class of Dadar, I beg your pardon, and Warli and the Chawls of, uh, you know, uh, Dharavi is very, very clear. So, you know, so, and then you have the national movement which is also epicentered in Bombay. So, Bombay is where Gandhi, you know, uh, launches the Roller Satyagraha 1919, which is his first major national campaign. It's the place where he, this is very important in the non-cooperation movement. Not so much in the Salt March, but the 42 Quit India movement is also played out in Bombay. And that's where Gandhi and Nehru and everyone and Patela and all are arrested. It's where the Mali is raised for the national movement. And it's where the Bombay Chronicle, which is the major English language nationalist newspaper, an alternative to the British establishment Raj-oriented Times of India, and of course the Raj-oriented statesman in Calcutta, you know, uh, finds birth and finds prominence. So in a, in a sense, this great complicated conflict-ridden city of Bombay is the theater against which, you know, the backdrop against which this narrative folds out. And Bombay is where, and Bombay also has a very large Muslim community, you know, and quite prosperous too. Uh, and Jila is also from Bombay, you know, Jila is also a major lawyer in Bombay, right? So the politics of race, caste, religion is played out with a particular intensity in Bombay, you know, so if shall we say the quadranga had been played in Chennai or even in Calcutta, it would have had all this dramatic social and you know, other kinds of interest or in Delhi. So in a sense, I think, when I, I reflect on it, that it was actually, uh, Bombay is also an actor in the book, you know. Uh, he speaks in many voices and it has, but he plays a role in the kind of, shall we say, the location, uh, uh, the layout, the social structure, the wealth, and the political dynamics of Bombay are all determining how uh, cricket is played and perceived and how my book gets written. So I just had, I didn't want to make Bombay a, set, a kind of major player in the book, but that's how it happened. So in a sense, 
because all these things are going on. It's a city of British wealth and power. It's a city of Indian nationalist assertion. It's a city, and it's also a truly cosmopolitan city. It's absolutely the most cosmopolitan city in India. And I believe probably even the world. I mean, more languages are spoken in Bombay than in New York or in London, for sure, right? It's got extraordinary religious diversity, Christians, Parsis. Also, again, the Parsis are so important in taking to cricket and they're basically in Bombay. So in a sense, it, I think Bombay is, uh, in some ways, you could even say, I would say the unsung hero of the book, but it is the particular, the peculiarities, the uniqueness of Bombay as, you know, India's most interesting and complicated and, of course, the most uh, prosperous city that make all of this possible. Absolutely. And, and also a city perhaps with uh, such tremendous fissures because, yes, uh, you yes. know, there are times in which you're writing about... Uh, the riots that are happening, and then two days later, matches are happening between Hindus. And, I mean, it's absolutely. it's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, 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 yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, you also mentioned the movement, uh, the Khilafat, Khilafat yeah, yeah, movement yeah, about yeah. The, you know the unity between the Hindus and the Muslims. And again, Bombay is yes. the center of the Khilafat. Even Ambedkar, Bombay is very important. Ambedkar, that's where he uh, practices law. That's where he starts the Siddharth College. That's where he makes his name as a writer. And of course, then that's where he meets Balu and fights an election against Balu. So in all of this, I think the city of Bombay is a very active player in the narrative. And it has just happened. It just happened. And, I'm, and I think I'm, I was lucky in the location also. also. Beautiful, beautiful. Now that you say it this way, it uh, takes me back to all the threads that you've drawn. But when you're reading it itself, it doesn't really strike you. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but, but one really interesting point, which I read first time in your book, is about the contrast between the development of the game in England and the development of the game in India in terms of how in England it went from being the countryside game and the game of the you know the village to being the city game. But in India, it had originated in the city and then moved on to the countryside. And uh, yeah, talk a bit about that and why do you think it is the case? You have given a bit of an explanation, but I'd love my listeners to understand that as well. So I think, uh, I think obviously... Uh, uh, it starts again, Bombay, the Parsis are the most westernized community. So, of course, there are debates about where was cricket first played uh, in India. And arguably, I mean, the first cricket club in Calcutta is older than that Bombay. The Calcutta uh, Cricket and Football Club is, I think, next to the MCC, the second oldest club in the uh, cricket club is older than, uh, you know, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Their claim for Telicherry as where the first cricket was played in India yes. in the 18th century. Right. But these were all played by white people. But the Parsis are unquestionably the first Indians to seriously take to cricket. They're also the first Indians to take to, uh, you know, English education, to the law, to Western classical music. They're the most westernized of Indian communities. And in a sense, you know, it, the story starts with them. And then others kind of went, uh, so hence Bombay, then other uh, uh, communities take it up. Now, uh, so it starts in the cities and then, of course, in Calcutta, Madras, and all these have their own version of the quadrangular or the pentangular. I mean, there's even a Karachi quadrangular uh, played in the 30s and 40s. In Lahore, you have, a, I think, a three-way three, three -way tournament and so on. And uh, I think Indian villages were too poor, too divided, too faction-ridden. And also, peasant life was too laborious for you to even imagine a Sunday off where you play cricket. I mean, now it may be different. Yeah. But it is impossible. Yeah. Well, workers got time off. You know, workers got time off. I mean, in fact, uh, since it's the 153rd, uh, one is, well, it's the 153rd uh, uh, episode of uh, your 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 podcast. 
it's appropriate to recall C.K. Naidu's 153. And among the things I discovered while writing this book was that one of the gifts he got after playing that extraordinary knock was uh, a scooter presented to him to public subscription from the textile workers of Parel. You know, so the textile wow. workers of Parel, I mean, it was an extraordinary discovery. So he was a working class hero. It was not an elite game, you know, contrary to what people claim that it's only Tendulkar and the IPL that make it a mass following. I mean, the workers of Parel subscribed to get a... I don't know whether you remember, you you know these uh, uh, artifacts, uh, Sid, a uh, motor scooter with a sidecar. Have you seen a motor yes, scooter? Yes, yes, yes. In my youth, it was like very cool if you actually had a sidecar. It was like owning a Bentley or a Mercedes. So then, I, I used to have a classmate who used to come to school in that sidecar, yeah, by the way. Regardless, very cool. And so the workers of Parel decided that the hero needed something special, not just an ordinary motor scooter, but a motor scooter with a sidecar. <laughs> and they raised enough money to get that music, and I do. So, I mean, fantastic, right? So, uh, I think all this was only possible in the cities. And of course, then later on, it, the game percolates through the countryside, and I'm not sure. I mean, they are, of course, it's still very much in terms of, uh, I, mean, I mean, I think in terms of viewership, now, it's penetrated in the countryside with television. I think from the 1980s, people could watch. You know, I don't think my sense uh, is that in the 1960s and 70s, very few people follow cricket in the in, in the villages, not even on the radio. It's really with television that this comes. No, no and even now, uh, those from the villages now move to the cities to play. Like uh, the yeah. team and teams and uh, Ranji Trophy teams are filled with players from different parts of the state, but they've all come to the main center to uh, hone their craft. Like people go to Bombay every day, cricketers go to Bombay every day, people yeah. come to Bangalore, etc. Uh, the other thing that, uh, yeah, talking about CK Naidu and the sidecar, they all, there's also this wonderful passage you have about Lala Amarnath, who scores 100 in the first test uh, in India. And then there is this newspaper columnist who says that all these cricketers are going to be ruined by uh, all this so much of fortune that they're making and the gifts <laughs> they're giving. And this is exactly what we say about cricketers who make money in the IPL these days, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so even that is not new. Uh, the other thing that is uh, that was interesting for me is that the first great rivalry in Indian cricket was between the Hindus and the Parsis and yeah. not between the Hindus yeah. and the Muslims, which of course yeah. became a rivalry after time. Later, but later. Yeah. the Parsis and the Hindus seem to have had such a fierce rivalry for space, for cricket, for supremacy, for proximity to the British, and so That's on. Right. Yeah. And also, it's also partly a commercial rivalry because the major merchants of uh, Bombay are either Parsi or Gujarati Hindus. You know, uh, you know they're uh, basically, uh, and so that's so the sponsors of cricket are also quarrelling in the stock, competing in the stock exchange in the textile market and and you know, and, and and trade trade to China, right? So uh, and Muslim. A Hindu-Muslim rivalry that comes later is more political and more at the grassroots. You know, it's a product in the 1930s and 40s of the Muslim League Congress conflict and the Jinnah Gandhi conflict, you know, and comes later. So yeah, so that's so there's first the Parsis and the Hindus, and then it's the uh, is the Hindus. I mean, it's first the Parsis and the Europeans. And again, you know, if you look at one of the discoveries I, I quote in my book is I don't know the exact details, but the first time the Parsis beat the Europeans in their annual match. And one of the journalists claims it 
compares it to some great victory of the Persians in the year 666, 666, 8604. Not since then have we great Persians have had such an epic victory kind of thing. So it's Parsis versus Europeans, then Parsis versus Hindus, then of course Hindus versus Muslims, which is the most bitter, most intense, most fractious, and most consequential because it clearly feeds into the movement for Pakistan. Absolutely. And in terms of the Parsis' uh, contribution to cricket, apart from the uh, great cricketers that they produced and things, they also seem to have been a really thriving and bustling culture of, uh, you know, journaling, chronicling, yes. writing books and Absolutely. regularly diaries and everything. Yeah, And also uh, broadcasting. I mean, I mentioned that uh, the quadrangular and pentangular was, you know, broadcast uh, live. And uh, it was AFS Talyar Khan, the great Talyar Parsi Khan. commentator, you know, who did the commentary and became a household name long before you know the commentators of today because of his commentary. And he was, of course, a Parsi, you know. And absolutely. I mean, the first historians of Indian cricket were Parsi, J.M. Framji Patel and, you know, uh, people like that. Uh, so absolutely, yeah. The first activist, Shapurji Sorabji, who said... We want this ground to play cricket and we can't play on it after the European polo ponies have gone over it because the turf is not smooth. You know, was 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 a Parsi. So yeah, the Parsi role in Indian cricket is very, very important. Again, I mean, since this is uh, you know, cricket lovers listen to this podcast. Uh, I mean it's, it's a sort of hardcore cricket nuts, you know, who follow everything minute about the game. It always struck me uh, as inter- interesting and telling and poignant that the last Parsi cricketer to play for India was Farooq Engineer. And in 1972-73, the CCI hosted, uh, the Brahman Stadium used to host the test matches in Bombay. The last test match hosted in Brahman was 72-73. CCI was founded by Parsis and Gujaratis, by the way. The Parsis have a strong... And A.F.S. Tariyan Khan used to live in the CCI. That's where he died. And in the last match played, a test match played in... uh, uh, Brabon, uh, Farooq before Engineer the long break, it came back, yeah. After a while, yeah. Farooq got 100, Farooq Engineer got 100, and then uh, the first match played at Vankhede, which was a non Parsi, Maharashtrian, Hindu kind of center, right? Uh, Farooq played that was his last test match, and he got zero and zero, you know. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of telling and pointed that as Parsi dominance, including about where cricket was run, which stadium it was played, started declining. You had, as it was towards the end, Farooq Engineer played his last test match at a non-traditional venue in which Parsis had no stake and he got 0-0. Zero and zero. And just before that, he got 100. Now, <laughs> it's kind of quite telling and moving. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I would like, I mean, there was a, I forget when, when it was, uh, you follow these things more closely than I said, there was a Parsi left-arm bowler who was recently a net bowler for India. Nagaswala. Arzan uh, from somewhere yeah. Gujarat, somewhere Gujarat, and I was Gujarat, hoping, Gujarat. you know, he, I was hoping maybe he can play for India. You know, before that there was a very good fielder who was a possible batsman called Zubin Barucha, who sold over Bombay. Zubin Barucha, yeah, because yeah. I grew up with you know Surti and engineer and Umrigar and all of them. So contractor, yeah, contractor, contractor. So, but I think now that that era is absolutely ended. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Arzan Nagaswala was a very uh, interesting run. I mean, we should see if, uh, you know, he, I, I don't uh, know what has happened of him. I should, I should check it out for sure. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, we spoke about Balu, we spoke about Vital, the first family of Indian cricket, but I think we should, uh, and we have touched upon the 153, but I think we should focus a bit on Naidu as well, because, Absolutely. you know, the fact, the towering figure that he was, and, uh, you know, we, I did this uh, wonderful, I had this wonderful conversation with this uh, uh, cricket, uh, with this uh, professor in uh, Indore, Surya Prakash Chaturvedi. And, uh, you know, he has written some remarkable uh, books in Hindi on uh, cricket. And, uh, you know, he's also knew, personally, he knew uh, Mushtaq Ali and uh, Sikhe Naidu much later in his years. And he was talking about how, you know, this Naidu just had to enter the room and he could change the mood. I mean, he was that kind of a towering figure. And you also very evocatively write about uh, that in the book. And I think many, you have quoted many others also, like Talia Khan who has spoken so well about Naidu. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was a colossal figure. And I think that 153, uh, I mean, the best description of that innings is in E.L. Docker's History of Indian Cricket. Uh, And uh, uh, he talks about, you know, what he did in the crowd. And of course, he reconstructed stroke by stroke. And the self-respect that it induced among Indians at a time of rising nationalism. I mentioned in my own book that there was a concert uh, in honor of the Indian team. Uh, in which Hira um, uh, Bai Barodikar sang. And Hira Bai Barodikar was actually half Hindu and half Muslim, which is a great classical vocalist to kind of symbolize this in this rather remarkable but unfortunately fragile and short-lived Hindu-Muslim unity of the early and mid-20s. But he was a colossal figure. He fought with the Maharajas. He, you know, he should uh, was our first captain. He should have been captain 36 too. But of course... Um, and of course, through his batsmanship, through his courage, I mean, the stories of his, uh, uh, this epic story of a match uh, when he was in his early 60s playing against uh, Bombay, you know, a Ranji Trophy match and a bouncer takes out his two front teeth and he keeps on playing and scores 60. So, I mean, he was, I, I mean, he, and, you know, it's like, uh, again, I quote in my book about uh, the Jardines team, the first official test playing team to tour India in 1934. Yeah. 33-34. And every, he, they, of course, the, Naidu was the captain in the three test matches, including the first, yeah, when uh, Amarnath scored the century you talk about, which is played in the Bombay Gym, Ghana. And uh, there are lots of like pickup matches, you know, Central India, uh, Punjab Governors 11. And Naidu was always playing. Naidu played, I think, if memory serves, 12 out of 32 matches against, <laughs> or 14 out of 32 matches against, against Jadi's team because the crowd wanted him. And I and Jardin said, I'm playing against CK and I do traveling circus. You know, that, that, that's what he said. <laughs> Partly, yes. But I quote the match, uh, I'll account of the match in Lahore. Punjab governor's team against MCC. And watching was a young Indian uh, cricketer who later was to play Ranji Trophy and North Zone called Prithvi Raj. And he says, Naidu's fours and sixes drove the fear of the foreigner from my mind. You know, so this kind of infusion of the national spirit was, and you know, in some ways, the favorite of all my Naidu stories in this book has to do with a photograph. You know, I had uh, I took great trouble collecting the photographs from different sources for the book. And the photograph of Naidu was given to me by an old family friend, actually an adopted aunt uh, in whose home I grew up in Dehradun called Sumati Bhatsi, who was a Bandarkar from Indore and was a close family friend of, of Naidu. And this photograph is... Uh, I mean, those who own the book, please look at, please, please have a look at it. The caption is C.K. Naidu outside the London Zoo, 1930, with two indoor friends and the zookeeper. So, one of the two indoor friends is 
my aunt's father, Mr. Bandarkar. So the two friends from Indore, C.K. Naidu and the zookeeper. Naidu, then I say, each of them is holding a, a, a lion cub in the, in the photo. And I say, C.K. Naidu outside the London Zoo with two indoor friends and the zookeeper. Naidu towered, towers above his colleagues as he towered over other cricketers that he played with or against. One of the indoor men asked whether the lion cubs would bite. And the keeper answered, no, but they might piss on you. Naidu seemed unfazed by either possibility. <laughs> so I was very pleased because actually this was written, this was this photograph which my aunt gave me at the back in Marathi, it was this her father had written that when we were holding these, the zookeeper said, you know, it won't bite. And Naidu was like just majestically holding these lion cup <laughs> as if it was his own child. I mean, it's just it's a, it's one of my favorite photographs, you know. Uh, and I'm glad to have had, had to, to have found it in a family collection. So, I mean, he was, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I wish again, you mentioned these writings in Hindi, I wish um, someone to write a biography of Naidu, you know, and there must be stuff all over the place. And, yeah. In fact, there was a history of Pakistan cricket that, uh, you know, came out uh, about uh, 10 years ago, written by uh, Peter Robon. Uh, uh. And there he mentions this uh, remarkable uh, story about uh, how Fasal Mahmood, who was uh, Pakistan's uh, first great uh, fast bowler, uh, was actually saved from a mob thanks to CK Naidu and how CK Naidu stood up for Fasal and uh, Fasal says that if not for CK Naidu, I would have never played uh, test cricket for Pakistan because I wouldn't have even made it here. And oh. this was when he was traveling by train to go to uh, 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 Pakistan from India. And so, uh -huh. you know, that, uh, I mean, uh, again, um, I don't know the uh, where that sourcing happened, but again, yeah. a remarkable, remarkable sort of again moral fiber fortitude. And, and, and he was thirty-seven when he made his test debut. You know, yeah. what if test cricket had come ten years before? You know? I mean, again, like that, uh, Vinu Mankar and Hazare and Merchant lost their six six best years to the war. You know, I'd say Naidu, Mankar, Merchant, and Hazare were in terms of their. Uh, talent, their achievement, and what they meant to Indian cricket and the Indian public at large, easily like Tendulkar and Kumle and Dravid and, you know, Dhoni. I mean, for me, they were of that stature and they really deserve their biographers. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think uh, you spoke about that 153. The last bit I want to mention is there is this famous cartoon that ran in the Times of India or one of the papers the next day, right? Where the yeah. clock towers are almost in fear saying, yeah. CK, don't hit us. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you think, and, and, and Sid, and again, all, all the listeners, if you think of 1926 and what the bats were like, for him to yes. hit 11 sixes, I think he hit 13 fours and 11 sixes. With today's bats, those would have been 24 sixes, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Of, uh, what, what it was like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean that must have been a, a Sevagian uh, kind of innings, you know. I mean, I can't think of uh, any other batter who could have uh, pulled yeah. that off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and the, the other thing is that, you know, talking about, uh, I brought up this cartoon. I, it Again, reading your book, it is amazing how many people who are not uh, connected to cricket, you know, whether it's uh, playwrights, poets, novelists, 
uh, and everybody else who was writing about the game. I mean, this uh, the Marathi press. You had the poets writing about the game. You had uh, cricketers writing about the game. It it seems to have been a much more uh, sort of uh, there seems to be much more entwined in the cultural fabric compared yeah. to now, where uh, you know cricket is considered one thing and uh, you know art is considered something else. Yeah. Now, in fact, to follow up on that, again one of the one of the um, remarkable strokes of good fortune. I had while uh, putting the book together. Was, I told you about this photograph of Sikh and I do in the Lion Cup, which my aunt had. But was um, when I was writing the book, I was talking about it to my friend, the late T.S. Satyan, who was a famous photographer from Mysore. And he said, I have the exact photograph. The, uh, I have the best possible photograph for your cover, which is a photograph he took in 1952 of... Uh, Arkin Narayan keeping wickets uh, in, yes. in a waste you know, with his debuts playing. And the, the original edition has that, right? And it seems Arkin Narayan. And of course, Arkin Narayan wrote a charming cricket story uh, uh, in Swami and Friends on the Malgudi Cricket Club. I mean, it's, it's a delightful piece of writing, uh, which I included in my anthology, An Indian Cricket Omnibus, uh, you know, back, back in 1994. So, yes, I mean, Marathi writers, I mean, there was a Marathi writer called N.S. Fatke. Then playwrights. So again, in my book, I use a play written in Marathi by a very celebrated Marathi playwright, R.R. Mama Varekar, which is about the discrimination against the Palwankar brothers, which figures in that play. And fortunately, my colleague Madhav Gadgil translated those relevant passages to him. So discrimination against Dalits on the cricket field figures in a play by a Marathi playwright in 1923, exactly 100 years ago. No, that's fantastic. That's quite remarkable. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, Sovik Naha's book on Calcutta, one of the merits of the book, it uses a lot of Bengali literary writings about cricket. You'll see, you'll see it when you, when you read the book. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would, I would love to pick, pick it out. Now, uh, most of our uh, discussions has been, of course, about uh, the pre-independence time and uh, the Balu and Naidu and uh, all these other things. Uh, now, when you come to the post-independence aspects of the book, uh, you have, uh, not focused on any particular cricketer or anything, but you have gone much more in the sort of the essayish uh, kind of board mm. where you pick out certain themes and you sort of uh, elaborate on them. Was that uh, partly because, uh, you know, you, you did not want to go into individual series, individual games, and you wanted to have much more of a broader arc? I mean, I just uh, want to understand the reason why you chose so, to go that path. So yeah. I think one is that, and I wanted to uh, you know, have a kind of more macro picture, a second is my reader would have been familiar with much of the uh, cricketing action of the six, particularly the 60s and 70s and 80s. And of course, some of it I've written about myself before. But really, there's no point writing about, you know, uh, 1971 or Umrigar or Gavaskar or, 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 or uh, you know. So in that sense, whereas Balu and Naidu seem to be, uh, Bal, the Balu, Vithal and Naidu. And uh, uh, seem to be worth rehabilitating. In fact, I'm, now that you mention it, one of the few cricketers uh, in the post-independence period, I write about at some length, is not an Indian, uh, but a former Indian, Abdul Hafiz Kardar, who played for India yes. before in 46 and in Pakistan afterwards. Because, you know, his writings, when he brings the first Pakistani tour, and his writings show a certain uh, uh, perception of, uh, you know, uh, uh, a kind of a Pakistani perspective on cricket in the subcontinent, you know, kind of a. Uh, uh, so I thought I must write about that, you know, because and he was also a, a scholar from Oxford who could write about these things and give it a kind of a ideological patina, which you know, which which I mentioned in my book. 
but partly because readers would be familiar with, you know, so they wouldn't be familiar with the broader context. I mean, again, I wanted to write to the extent possible about things like one of again, one of the things I was happy to write about when it came to the post-partition, post-independence period, were the commonwealth teams of the late 40s and early 50s, because they had been forgotten, you know, these three commonwealth teams, the spirit of commonwealth transnational solidarity, come here, you know, teams in with. Australians, New Zealanders, West Keith Indian, Miller, Keith Miller, <laughs> Frank Worrell, most of all. Because Frank, Frank Worrell never played a test match in India. But he was an absolute hero for Indians of my uncle's generation who had seen him play for Commonwealth teams. Absolutely. I think even now in Calcutta, they have, uh, when they have the blood donation yes. uh, sort yeah. of uh, drives, it's a Frank Worrell is uh, remembered yeah, absolutely. because it's of what Frank he Warrell did to Larry Contractor. Absolutely. <laughs> it's called Frank Worrell Blood Donation Day. That's what it's called. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Frank Worrell, absolute hero. Uh, you know, uh, talking about the, um, I was just going to, uh, I was just going to take off. Yeah, uh, Abdul Hafiz Kardar. There's a, pub, a publisher in Pakistan who has actually come out with his uh, all his uh, put together his diaries and oh, come together. Put uh, yeah, it has uh, come recently. I got the book and it's a folio book. So I will send you the details. It's a yeah. wonderful. Uh, it's short. But uh, it goes okay. into detail about their victory in England in uh, 1954. Okay. Yeah. I'd it's, love to get it's it. Very it's good. Detail I'll order it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, I, I have been meaning to. Uh, you mentioned it before, but uh, we should get into a bit of uh, spend a bit of time on that India-Pakistan match in 1999. Uh, to to be there and to experience that in the backdrop of uh, the war. And uh, you as a historian being in that moment, and also you had been at the 96 quarterfinal in Bangalore, in yeah, uh, yeah. our hometown. So talk a bit about 99 and uh, your memories of it and what uh, contrasted a bit with 96 too. So uh, the first contrast is that Bangalore, as you know, the weather was perfect and Manchester <laughs> was bloody cold. I was freezing. I was in the media overspill box. I was able to get a pass. <laughs> But I was not the main media box. I was absolutely freezing. Fortunately, I had Suresh Menon next to me for company. So he warmed me and cheered me. He was also, he, he me deservingly and he undeservingly was in the media. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, I mean, it's like quite remarkable. I mean, I mean, Manchester is a city known for football. Uh, occasionally, there have been minor affrays between Manchester City and Manchester United fans. But here, there were, I think, 5,000 police, right? Police brought out because the war in Kargil, India and Pakistan were fighting a war at, you know, 30,000, 40,000 feet. And against this backdrop, there was this, uh, this quarterfinal. And I, as I said, I was able to get a media pass, albeit in the overspill and not in the main box, but I found it impossible to get a hotel ticket, hotel's room, uh, because they were all sold out. And fortunately, a friend who was, uh, Jonathan Parry, professor of anthropology in, in London School of Economics, had a, friend who taught anthropology in Manchester called Mary Searle Chatterjee, who had worked on India and was happy to host me for, for, for that night. And she was very, I thank her in my book. And yeah, I mean, I, those memories are just vivid of, uh, of you know, the, uh, the uh, every, I mean, the press really feared a riot. They did not happen. They took precautions. It was a low scoring match. Uh, uh, they were, I mean, and some of the best one day matches are low scoring. You will agree. Yes. You will agree. Absolutely. I don't, yes. I think India may have got 215, but well below 250. That makes it more interesting. Tendulkar got a good 40. And I, I, I remember uh, Robin Singh hitting a six into the stands and the crowd going wild. Robin, Robin. Uh, again, uh, a Trinidadian 
Uh, who I think once <laughs> captain Brian Lara. I think while Brian Lara once played against him for Trinidad under 18. Juniors maybe. Juniors, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, and yeah, that uh, it was, I, I remember that uh, uh, it was a bitterly, bitterly cold day. Yeah, we was freezing there and well, early on, briefly, the sun came out. Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, and you could see the Pennines and then the sun went down. And the guy next to me said, he saw me looking at the hills and he said, if you can see the Pennines, you know, if you cannot see the Pennines, it is raining. If you cannot see, if you see the Pennines from Old Tribert, it is about to rain. Luckily, <laughs> 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 it did rain. It was bitterly cold, it did rain. And uh, uh, I mean, again, I mean, there were two, I can't remember, I mean, someone will have to consult the scorecard. But I think Tendulkar got 40, about 40. And Sayyid Anwar, who was one of my absolute favorite players because of his grace and fluency, must have got 40 or 50 on the other side. And uh, you check the scorecard, you may be able to find out. And it was really, uh, the match was decided and as, as, a, as someone who in cricket always appreciates good fielding above good bowling and good batting. Because I was such a lousy fielder myself. I mean, I, what I remember most about that match was, I mean, I remember Tendulkar State Drive and Rahul uh, and uh, uh, Rahul, uh, Robin Singh's uh, SWAT for six and many other things. But what I remember most of all was uh, Venki uh, uh, Saeed Anwar, who's taking the match away from India. He bowls a ball which seems away from around the wicket and it can low on the edge and Azad dives in front of first clip and takes a catch, very low. And a Marvelous. fabulous, fabulous catch. And I remember this is 1999 and about 12 years later, I met, bumped into Venki and I said, you know, I remember that catch. I don't remember your bullying that much, but I remember that catch. And he said, and he said yeah, of course, it was, you know, Azanuddin was probably the greatest, uh, greatest uh, fielder, all-round fielder ever produced by India. And uh, because particularly, unlike Jadija, who's never been tested fielding a slip, he was fabulous there too. But I think the overwhelming feeling was of relief that there was no riot. Not so much that India had won, but there was no riot. I mean, India then, of course, uh, did, didn't progress further in the tournament and Pakistan was humiliated, went to the final, but was humiliated by Shane Maughan uh, there. Uh, but I think the overwhelming sense was of relief uh, that though India and Pakistan were locked in battle uh, in the Himalaya, here at least there had been no, you know, no, no, no writing. But but uh, yeah, but as some as a historian, as somebody who has studied this very deeply, and has as uh, you know, obviously as somebody who has uh, read Orwell, and uh, you know, uh, what is your uh, what is your general take on this? Uh, given the situation between the two countries, especially in time of war or in times like this, when there is uh, you know um, hostility now, and uh, you know it could hostilities any time. What is your take on playing sport? In, the, in this kind of environment? So, it's very difficult to say. At one level, the players have enormous respect for one another. You know, even in the 1996 uh, quarterfinal in Bangalore, one of my abiding memories is of Imran Khan and Sunil Gavaskar walking across the field in the morning. They were both in the commentary box and they were checking. Commentary box. <laughs> yeah, and, and they walked across the field before, before play started. So, the players have a great uh, admiration. I remember even in 1999, uh, when all this happened and there was this Kargil business going on, uh, I happened to meet Raj Singh. Raj Singh Dungapur, the great uh, lover of Indian cricket and administrator who spent his summers in London. And sometime during that trip, I can't remember before or after that match, I met Raj Singh. 
And he told me he attended the reception in Buckingham Palace to all the teams. And he said the Pakistani players only wanted to be near Tendulkar. They wanted to maybe touch <laughs> his blazer. God is, God is a fly. As close. They were just edging, you know, they were like all whatever, how many teams, 10 or 12 teams participating. And he said the Pakistani players only wanted to be as close to Tendulkar, feel his aura, you know, get his benediction. That was it. And so I think that is certainly there. And uh, uh, but whether what it does to society at large will be polarized. Possibly testing it is no more, less, more polarized, less polarizing, but one can't say for sure. But it's tragic, you know. I mean, I wish I could see Barbarazam bat in Bangalore. Absolutely. That, that would and, be nice. And, and we are speaking yeah. about 99, uh, yeah. uh, the year when uh, Chennai stood up to applaud right. the Absolutely. famous Absolutely. victory. The beautiful player. I wish I could see Barbarazam bat in Bangalore. Yeah. Absolutely, and 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 that uh, you spoke about the Azhar catch of Said Anwar in that uh, match. The interesting thing is, just a few months before in Eden Gardens in Calcutta, when Said Anwar went on to make one eighty eight odd, uh, Azhar had dropped a catch of Said okay. Anwar okay. in the slips. So okay. there was a bit of a redemption yeah. there for Azhar, yeah. saying, "Okay, Azhar. I got yeah. to the World Cup." <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, this is uh, wonderful, Ram. I've uh, covered uh, quite a bit uh, of it to the book. I mean, you spoke about Raj Singh, Dungarpur, the, you know, such a great loss that we, he's not with us anymore. And also such a great loss that he didn't really uh, document yeah. uh, his yeah. memories of cricket and uh, chronicle yeah. that. But, uh, you know, Raj Singh is probably, uh, you know, when you just said CK Naidu to Raj Singh, yeah, he yeah. could go for like three hours yeah, nonstop. Yeah, the, the kind of admiration he had for the man. Just, uh, no, I wish his stories had been recorded, you know. I wish some Bombay journalist had sat down with him uh, one hour a day for two months, you'd have had a book, you know. It's yes. tragic. I mean, his stories were just uh, extraordinary. But, but, but I don't know whether I quoted in this book or elsewhere. But I talked about Vithal. He, he asked me, you know, because he, was, he used to hang around CCI. And that's when I was doing my research. And occasionally I would bump into him and he, I would, we would chat about my research. And I would I told him once about... Vittal. And uh, he said, oh, Vittal. I said, you know, I've, I've been finding this stuff about Vittal and his brother. And he said, he said something very interesting. He said, my father told me Vittal was as good as Hazare. Oh. He said, my father told me Vittal was as good as Hazare. And I remember writing about this. I don't think in uh, column of foreign field, maybe in a column. But I said, Raj Singh told me, uh, or maybe even in column of foreign field, I can't remember that. Raj Singh's father said, Vithal uh, is was as good as Hazare. Raj Singh would like would would have certainly said Hazare was as good as Gavaskar. Ah, I would say Gavaskar was as good as Tendulkar, because <laughs> Vithal is as good as Tendulkar. Because Raj Singh said this. He just continuously said this. You know, he said, My father told me Vithal was as good as Hazare. Now. That's something that's that's huge praise, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah. I mean, and we can even extend it by saying his father might have shaken Vittal's hand and yeah, you have shaken Raj Singh's hand, yeah, and yeah, Tendulkar yeah. has probably shook shook your hand, so the connection <laughs> is formed. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh wonderful, wonderful. As I said, uh, we have covered uh, some of the themes in the book, but please pick it up. It's a, it's a very sort of immersive read. You will get lost in it. It will take you across, you know, so many rabbit holes. You will uh, understand. You will try and do your own uh, research in certain parts. It's beautiful. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, Ram, before you go, I, uh, you know, we ask uh, many of our guests this, and I cannot uh, not ask you this, uh, being a historian. We ask uh, to recommend 
three or four or five how many ever cricket books for our listeners many of our listeners are very avid readers and i'm sure they would love to hear the some of the books it need not be your uh, it it's yeah. not like you're saying they are the best books but it's just something that you would recommend readers to read so yeah in 2000 i edited an anthology called the picado book of cricket and i ended yes. that book with uh, uh um 50 of my favorite books on cricket it was this epilogue the anthologies other people's writings not mine but this epilogue written my own voice in the form of essay called an addicts archive and it's about 50 books that i keep on returning to and uh, at that stage Gideon Hague is included in the anthology as a uh, as the author of an article on cricket, but in two okay. thousand he had not really become a famous cricket writer, so he was not in my list of fifty. Today, if I was asked to list ten ten books on cricket, just ten, not fifty, the most difficult thing choice before would be which book of Gideon should I have? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Should it be yeah. his Iverson biography? Should it be book on one? Should it be the summer game? Should it be the big ship? What should it be? Right. So cricket I war. Think, of course, I don't want to make it only a list about Gideon, but uh, in some ways, uh, his book. a stroke of genius yes. which is about this photograph that dw beldum took of a tumper and his it's a history of cricket and a history of cricket's photography it's a i won't say it's a it's hard to say which is gideon's best book but it's the one that is most transgressive most innovative uh, uh, you know uh, most original so i'd say certainly do that and that may take you to gideon on one and gideon on i was said <laughs> good good so get started with something by gideon because 23 years ago when i compiled a list gideon was not even there right he is the greatest cricket writer of all time period there can be no dispute about that just as beyond the boundary is the greatest cricket book of all time there can be no discussion about that too right then i would certainly include two books by indians uh one is prashant kidambi's uh, cricket country which i have talked about the other is rahul bhattacharya's pandits from pakistan which is a very fine and moving Uh, and very charmingly written travel diary of india pakistan relations and we've talked about india pakistan relations in our in our conversation um then i think shield berry's book on i think it's called the spirit of cricket which is a first state kind of overall history uh, of the game there's a very good book on west indies written by simon lister uh, whose yes. name I, is it called the is it called the fire next i, I forget fire, fire in babylon fire in babylon uh, so uh, yeah so I mean, these are some of the really fine books I've read recently uh, that 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 have emerged. But West Indies cricket means so much to me because I grew up and West Indies was you know the, the great greatest. power, <laughs> the great power, and you know Gary Sowers, uh, what Gary Sowers meant, uh, of course. Yeah, so uh, I recently read quite a good book by uh, by Vic Marx called Late Cut, Late Cuts. I would recommend that. You know, it's a very And you know, I have a theory about books by uh, cricket writers that I mean you can't expect Sachin Tendulkar to write a good book, <laughs> or even you know Ricky Ponting or Avasi Avasi Makram. I mean I'm I've not read Sultan of Swing, but if you're a reasonably good cricketer like Vic Marks, I mean Vic Marks has had the experience of Graham Hick taking 400 runs off him and his team in a day. So if someone <laughs> hits 60 sixes off you, you can write about cricket. You know, I have a lot of pain. You know what it. So, Big Mark's book on late cuts is one of the better books written recently by a cricketer, and it's written by him. It's not written by a ghost. 
So I would include that certainly. Uh, yeah, so these kind of five or six books. And of course, Gideon, I mean, his book on war is special. And I tell a story about his book on war that it's a tiny book with a very clever title, On War, uh, or after On War by Clausewitz, the great uh, manual of, of uh, you know, military strategy. And uh, it's cutting out four substantive chapters and that's it. And I bought it uh, in Delhi. I was flying to Shanghai, from Delhi to Shanghai, uh, to give a talk. And uh, I, I got on a flight at 10 o'clock. Uh, the seat next to me was empty. And uh, I uh, read the first two chapters, was gripped by it, but it was about 12.30. I was very tired. It was midnight. I put it in the empty seat. Went to sleep, got up an hour later, and someone had flicked the book. So I said, It's a book, even a Chinese wanted to flick, you know, on a flight from Delhi to Shanghai. So I had to come back from China and then buy another copy of the next two chapters. But I said, I told Riddick Gideon, this is a great tribute to your book. It was, you know, if it was stolen on a Delhi Bangalore flight or a Sydney Melbourne flight, it's fine. But a Delhi Shanghai flight, in which I was certainly the only Indian, you know, your book was stolen from me. So, yeah. It's, yeah. it's great. It's great to know that uh, people are stealing cricket books. I mean, there can be nothing more reassuring than Absolutely. that, especially for somebody who is trying to publish, republish old cricket classics. This is the ultimate uh, proof that I'm on the right path. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. Yeah. Yes. And, and of course, Gideon, uh, my, uh, personally, my favorite book of Gideon is Cricket War. About the Packer okay, uh, okay. years of, uh, that he has uh, sort of atmospherically recreated. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Of course, anything but Gideon. Fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much, Ram. This has been a pleasure. You've spared so much time and you've spoken about a book that is very close to my heart. And I'm sure all my listeners uh, would have enjoyed this. And also, if you haven't read the book, please pick it up. Please read it. And uh, yeah, it's a treat. It's something that you have to have on your shelf. Like all of Ram's books, of course. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. And a regular reminder to our listeners that uh, you can uh, follow us at 81allout on Twitter. Our website is 81allout.com. And uh, thank you so much for all the support. And uh, as I mentioned, we have been republishing some cricket classics. Uh, I will put the link in the show notes. Uh, cricket Beyond the Bazaar by Mike Coward is our latest. And then be before that, we published Mike Marcus's War Minus the Shooting. So please pick them up. And uh, yes, uh, thank you for listening and see you soon. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India home. Lords goes wild. 